Feeling tired at the gaming table? Want to hear foul-mouthed jackasses poke fun at gaming companies when they screw up? Want an honest, street-level opinion from a team of gamers that call it like it is? Then Blunt Force Gamers may be the podcast for you. Listener discretion advised. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and gamers of all ages, it is us. You know who we are, it's on the intro. I am Game Goblin, your host, alongside... Kazakhan, the Lord Dragon. And... Darth Blasphemous, hail to the dark side. And as always, we are three GMs and an empty microphone because he's got a job. He got a job. He's got a job. What a lucky bastard. (laughs) Yeah, I've got a few months left in me. I'm getting fat over here, and I'm actually, like, rolling dice online with a group because... The boredom. Holy shit. And it reminds me of boss battles. So that's going to be our topic today, gentlemen. Boss battles. We are revisiting an old topic we recorded like three years ago. So what makes for a good boss in a game? What makes for a bad boss in a game? What makes for an interesting boss in a game? Well, we're going to discover that. Delve into that fucking dungeon of nastiness and so you want to carry the torch or the pitchfork I'm thinking god damn I've run so many over the years so I've had everything in my game from a 50 foot tall Barbie to a literal dream demon so I've got bosses in my pocket in fact, well, let's let's put all the bosses in your pocket into categorical or order. In categorical order. Yes. So, there's many different types of bosses. There's your story arc boss, which is the overall campaign agenda. Mm-hmm. There's your dungeon boss, which is you know at the end before the final good treasure. Doesn't have to be your overarching story boss. Uh, you've got horde bosses where you know massive battles or whatever battle groups. It's the sergeant. Um, and then you've also got um, other smaller bosses you can just throw in on one-shots, like Random Encounter. There so happens to be a level 5 uh, fucking Barbarian, and that's the fucking boss for this raid group right now. Ooh, a raid boss. Well, categorically, I would think that the most interesting boss, uh, for the games that I run typically anyway, is the story boss. And for that, I typically use the rule of two especially in recent years. Uh, You've encountered that in the vampire game, Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Blasphemous, where one does not simply challenge the con. Nope, (laughs) nope. But you sure as hell can fuck his daughter. Yes, you can. He was not in league with the actual antagonist. He was an antagonist in his own right, but he was more of a foil. More of a, damn it, why is he here situation thing going on rather than He's actually working for the big boss to screw us over. He was... Tangential. Tangential, whatever you want to call he, it. He wasn't the main, but God, he was annoying. He was like the optional other boss. If you would have defeated the big bad, you still had this guy to contend with. He was a... Uh, if you imagine going on a hike through the forest, the big boss is the stone you have to roll up the hill. He was the pebble in your shoe. He was constantly there to remind you that he was there, and he was not going to go away. And even if you got rid of him, he would somehow manage to come back. So he was more of the irritation boss. 
uh, usually though, when running a game with two bosses in it, you have the overarching story boss, of course, the evil sorcerer taking over the land, or the space warlord, or the post-apocalypse guy who wants to rebuild an empire in his own image. You, you usually have the overarching boss. you got your Palpatine guy. Right. And then you have underneath him the muscle, the foil. So you essentially have the mastermind and the muscle. And the second to command is usually in most story cases. Uh, you can see this all over any sort of cinematic universe. The muscle guy is the dude who basically goes in there and he beats face on whoever the protagonists are. He tells them they're weak, he tells them they're foolish, he tells them they're stupid, but in truth, he's actually being either manipulated or controlled by the mastermind. And we can look at this, I, I'm sorry, it's been a lot of westerns with me people, but it is that time of year to just hunker down with a good western series. Go Bonanza. Um, it's the guy who the big landowner sends out to beat the people in the streets. Exactly. It, it, it's his right hand. And, you know, you distract him with your right hand to kill him with your left. It, it's kind of like a, a Jekyll and Hyde scenario. You know, the group is going to pay attention to Hyde, but not Jekyll. Yeah. And even Jekyll may not be truly a bad guy. He might be a good guy, but he does bad things. Uh... Yeah, a good example, again, I know I keep harping on this character, because he was fun to make, but the uh, CDC Plague oh, Doctor. Oh yeah, yeah, him, your Plague Doctor. Right. His ultimate goal is still the greater good. He wants to remove disease as a factor for everybody. And to do that, he has to understand disease. He has to inflict disease. So his rules were, I will not give you something that will kill you. I have the cure for what I give you. And you probably won't know you're being infected. You know, it's, it's actually interesting that Blasphemous over here is surfing on the internet while we're podcasting, but he just passed by a picture of Lord Strahd, who's a very popular hero in Raven... Or not hero, <laughs> a very popular villain. Well, depending on a certain point of view... <laughs> yeah, depending on your alignment and how you play it. Exactly. Uh, this, actually, Ravenloft does follow the rule of two very good, especially in the older ed uh, editions. So if we go all the way back to, like, second edition, when I first heard about this horrible place... Terrabad, 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 you danger have, zone! Yeah, you have Strahd. He is the face man. He is the dude in control. He's also in a rivalry with another villain. So you have two villains. You have Strahd and you have Lord Soth. You have a vampire and a lich trapped in an eternal war between the two of each other. Well, and they generally fight each other instead of everyone else, so it somewhat keeps a peace? It's somewhat. Somewhat. It's not as bad as if one of them was just let loose. If they had no one to fight, then they would be let loose on everyone. Well, that came later, though, unfortunately, because Strahd dropped a castle on Lord Soth. A so literal castle. It turned out the castle was his phylactery. So he broke the castle and crushed the corpse at the same time. Sounds like something a player character would do, but... Yeah? yeah. It still followed the rule of two really well by having two primary antagonists, and even though they weren't working with each other because they hated each other's guts, you still had two villains on the, the, the battlefield. And, and Strahd is a mastermind. What is Soth? 
the muscle. Exactly. Soth is just a raging beast of armor and lich. And fuck everything else. Yeah. Getting into a fight with either one of these guys, Not Sean a good has idea. plans within plans within plans to deal with you. Soth will just rip you arm from arm and beat you to death with the stumps of your Bleeding. recently killed family members. Yeah. Yeah. They will they will go off on you. But see, that's definitely an end game scenario. When you have finally gotten through all the shitty parts of the dungeons, you've gone through and done all your fucking go forth and slay a dozen rats in the bottom of the cellar when you're level one shit. He's definitely like, what What level was it to take him on? Level 10 or better? Something like that. He's really high up there. I think it's between 10 to 15 originally. So so let's step it back. What was, what was your main bad guy when you were level 8? Well, when I was level 8... Like who was it? That would be my just... father. <laughs> Ooh, not not that level eight. Oh, not um, that level. I'm eight. talking about in game. What would be the guy? What is your big bad guy below the story arc villain? Villains. Usually, too? that's some sort of powerful wizard. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking wizard, too. Uh, a land baron or a count, somebody higher up in society, but not a world shaker, more of a geography shaker. Yeah, they, they're they're the effect of their influence is much more limited. It's regional. Like you might get three they're or like four a cities. Governor of a yeah, state. like you, you get know, three or four cities, you get something moderate. Yeah, if I decide at some point just to throw my hands in the air and say screw this guy and walk away, I just got to cross a mountain range or two, and I might have to worry about a random assassin showing up once or twice. Yeah, but, it's, but, but what are some other good examples? Like you say, the wizard. So. You've got a wizard in a tower trying to pose his influence over a region. Also possible. Very I mean, possible. Blood mages do it. Um, you, you get hired just to take this guy out. It, it might be like a wizard who's practicing, not necromancy. I mean, he could be doing necromancy, building his undead army as usual. Although in my games, I like to change it up. Maybe it's a transmuter who needs oh, more experimental pieces and has been going around sending his minions out, which are mutate mutated people he's experimented on before so maybe like a little house of a thousand corpses action going on here and they go out and kidnap people because more fodder more, more experience but his range is getting further and further out because those that he has been kidnapping their villages are going into lockdown or beefing up security measures and so he's got to move his influence around to keep up with this. Mm-hmm. So yeah it would be definitely regional if you got like a powerful wizard who's like a transmuter and he's just gone completely insane and he's trying to create like the ultimate flesh golem and if he does this all in one location a lot of people are going to notice an entire village wipeout overnight mm-hmm. but if he takes like one or two people who go missing while hunting it's not going to raise so much suspicion or yeah. you know a traveling caravan that was lightly guarded just happens to disappear on the road I mean, there's crazy, scary monsters out there. It's or perfectly it, normal. Yeah, or it might be a, uh, yeah. Depending on my player's actions, I could definitely see throwing in a crime network. That's feeding it. Yeah. Uh, well, the crime network would probably be pissed off at the party. Yeah, you're taking our business. Uh, Fuck off, eh? Yeah, the player characters could be uh, intruding in on somebody else's uh, already established power base, and. If they decide to start muscling in, you know, like, you always get this one guy who always plays a rogue, 
who for some reason decides to take over an orphanage. Like, nobody's going to claim territory before the players got there. Especially orphanage. You kidding me? That's free recruits. That's that's street urchins that can get information. Hell, even at that point, the rogue might be stepping on a local church's mm-hmm. uh, yeah. purview. If it's a church of, say, Paylor, the god of light and peace and harmony and fucking up the undead, and the rogue just waltzes in and says, yeah, I'm going to turn it to my training ground for children assassins. Paylor is not going to be thrilled about yeah, that. Yeah, the Church of Paylor might actually like key in his clerics that there's something bad going on over there to deal with it, and the villain, the boss, may actually be a good guy for a change. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've we've talked about the the character, the necromancer, the good necromancer, right? Yeah, we've talked about the good necromancer many times. Right, it's a good story. It, as far as you know, as far as that player was concerned, he was a solo character trying to save the world from tyranny and from, you know, and trying to free man from ha- people from having to work in the fields. Why why should you do that when you can have your skeleton do that? Right? Absolutely. And now you can spend time reading or bettering yourself or learning something because you can. Now you have time. The one that really gets me and most player characters in there are uh, player characters are as widely divergent and different as players themselves. Even more so sometimes. Yeah, even more so sometimes. But I'm thinking what would be really interesting to do, and I have not yet done it 100% in game. I've tried. I, I've dabbled in that area, but you always get that one murder hobo always like, ah, screw it. And what I wanted to do was like the misguided villain, uh, much okay. like your doctor character you were talking about, who's doing bad things but has a greater goal in mind. They're misguided. And all they need is just a little bit of a course correction, a talking to. So, uh, what's his name? The Batman villain, Dr. Frost or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, where he's trying to cure an incurable disease, but he needs to preserve the body, so he steals the equipment necessary. Yeah, or we can go to Venture Brothers, one of the greatest shows of all time. May it rest in peace during this cancellation. Yes. Where all the villains in there have reasons for why they do it. it innumerable hate for an individual specifically is all that drives them. Or it's just a way to make money. Or they didn't like who they were, so they ended up becoming the most powerful supervillain in history. Hell, for one character, it became a job. Yeah. It was just because he, like, uh, the minions we're talking about. And, of course, minions are always great in the boss battle. But number 46 or whatever his name was. 21. 21, the fat one. He, like, goes out and he gets swole. He gets jacked up and he gets into a fight with Brock and survives. And they're both having a good laugh afterwards. Like, that is great character development. And You go from being background to being literally at the end of the last season. Spoiler alert. He becomes a full-fledged villain himself. He becomes the Monarch's number two. He yeah. goes from Henchman 21, the fat one, to being a full-fledged villain there to help his best friend get revenge for God knows what reason. And the best part is they have a conversation earlier on in the seasons, and basically they just became minions because they answered a wanted ad. Well, for him it was because he got kidnapped when he was in the 8th grade. Yeah, One of them actually did answer a uh, help wanted ad, though. That's how he became a minion. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's not like your villains are going to be running around doing everything with their own ten fingers, or more if they have them. And one of the great things in writing, too, and it's one of those weird things people miss out on, especially in gaming, and I know I've harped on this before in past episodes, 
But a vast majority of villains do not walk up and say, I'm the bad guy. Unless they're trying for, like, showmanship. Unless they're trying for showmanship or they are really screwed in the head and have decided, you know what, screw the rest of reality and life and stuff. I'm going to just mess things up before I punch out. I mean... So the player characters. So basically player player characters, characters, yeah. So... Most bad guys are convinced that they are actually the good guys. How many people in real life history who have done horrible things would stand in front of a podium and tell an auditorium full of people that they're the bad guy? Yeah. Or when they get caught, when they go into whatever war crimes arena they have to go into for a trial and be like, well, I did it because I'm the bad guy. Yeah. No, No. No one claims that. No one does that. It's no just not a thing that people do. And the reason is because bad guy, bad! I don't want to be bad, I want to be good. Even if it's my version of good. I mean, yeah, Thanos is a perfect example of this. I know I've, we've, a lot of people brought him up, but he's uh, very still relevant to pop culture. As Thanos did what he did, he did some very horrific things, and even the after effects, if you look at it scientifically, we're stupid as shit, but he was utterly convinced he was doing the right thing for the greater good of everyone. And everything. And everything. He was. He thought he was the hero. He thought the story was all about him. Now, you can't get more misguided than Thanos snapping his fingers to heal the universe by killing half of it. When he had the power, he could have just actually made the problem go away. He could have probably made the problem go away, but the simplest solution, he was going on Occam's Razor there, the simplest solution was to divide. Because it's easier to let things heal and bounce back over time than to try and fix things all at once and then the problem come back again when everything doubles once more. Yeah. And besides, it's easier to take matter away than to create new matter. I guess. I mean, sure, there's a fair bit of argument there, but we've kind of deviated into... Why villains, not but it bosses. Is, but it's it is an part important part of why villains, because why is a villain a sub-level villain? We can look again to Venture Brothers, praise be it. Mm-hmm. They have the level system. Levels 1 through 10. In all real- reality, 0 through 10, because a 0 is a minion. So you have your level 1 villains. Guy in a costume and an old stanza. An old car. And that's your level one villain. And then you got like the Reaper running around who scares the shit out of you in the model. Oh, he's a ten. He's, he's definitely a ten. a ten. Flaming horse and everything. Oh yeah, fucking laser show, whole nine. What I do love about his character though is they humanize him by, of course, he's like, I've got to get back and pack lunch for my daughter. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, Lila needs her corn chips. No, they don't go stale overnight. Yeah. That, that's one of the, you know, and that's one thing I rarely ever see in a, a game is like, you walk up, you confront the villain, and like his phone goes off, and he's like, honey, the kids, uh, you know, need help with their homework, and you stop by the library on the way home. Grab a book on this. Grab a book on, you know, the Civil War. Yeah, I'm just, who the, what the? He's Excuse a, me for a minute, he, I gotta take this. He's a villain and a dad? Or, oh God, think about Itmon. You remember the Itmon movies? Oh, yeah, I, I totally And just, the, the kid comes just rolling through on a tricycle while they're having their badass fucking mid-movie fight. Mom doesn't want him to break anything. Beat him quick. 
Come on, with something like that to happen, that's yeah. what put that's what humanizes a boss and can make them a better boss in general. And it if you're getting down to a level four, you know, a sub tier boss, you're fighting, I don't know, Mr. Heine, the fucking wonder laser cure for hemorrhoids. You know. Yeah. At least you're not fighting fuck man. True. But you know, you've you've got these lower level villains and usually why they do it. Is it just a job for them? Are they trying to do the right thing? Is that why they're the overarching story villain? Are they the local villain because they're just trying to undo something that was done? We can look at, I know you've seen it, Wakfu. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from, uh, I know it, they claim it as a Netflix original but started somewhere else where the villain wanted to go back in time to stop himself from getting absorbed in everything so he could actually be a family guy and take care of his kids centuries before even though now he is out of time because he's taking he's killing everything to put its life force into an alien device that he hopes will send him back in time and once he fills up his little generator for what he thinks will do it he only goes back in time about 10 seconds womp yeah shows you the futility of that villain, but he had a good cause in mind. His his goal as a boss was expressly, you know, I don't want to be this way. And he didn't really clue into the fact that he could have just stopped. I also find that a good boss, uh, when it's not dungeon time, when it's dungeon time, a good boss should scare the players in some way, shape, or form, simply like by doing attribute damage. That is a great way to get people's attention is when they get hit by a boss and it does something like strength damage or wisdom. <laughs> Somebody in the group has a key attribute on their character sheet they do not want to see reduced. Or the rarely used charisma damage. Even charisma damage when it hits zero will screw your character over. Doesn't it kill you if you're one of your attributes drop below zero? Yeah. Uh, most of them, yeah. Yeah, most of them, yeah. So I think... I know if your intelligence hits zero, your brain stops functioning, and yeah. you can no longer sustain necessarily. Does the same state. thing go for wisdom? I don't know how it's explained for wisdom and charisma, though. Well, regardless, if something does attribute damage, it will wake people up. <laughs> hit points come back with a, a spell casting. I know. Attributes I'm... take a high-level spell and time to rest. Or a holy healer. Or a holy healer, which you don't have... When the boss is standing over there, blade in hand, like, come on, bros, let's do this. So, Isn't a dungeon a... boss should be a slap in the face, in my opinion. It should wake your players up. And a non-dungeon boss, but a story boss, uh, as Blasphemous suggested earlier, should be personal to the characters. Yeah, yeah there's a reason behind the story so, boss. Real quick, sorry, it's a tangent, I know, but I just realized... My next mid-level boss is going to have a magic item that does charisma damage. I'm specifically going to call it the ugly stick. <laughs> Do it. There you go. <laughs> but a villain who's personal to players, basically the easiest way I've found as a GM is to do to the players as the players are willing to do to your world. Yeah. For some reason... Player characters have no qualms, no reservations, regardless of what's written on their alignment, of running around, pillaging, killing, and taking anything they want that's not bolted down. But you have a thief sneak in in the middle of the night and take 
five gold pieces from the fighter. He will hunt them down to the ends of the earth. If you manage to bring in a boss who makes it personal for the player characters by attacking what they think is important as players, they will respond and it will become personal. If you aggravate those players, like, they come up with this great plan. They roll a shitload of hot 20s to make this plan go through. They stabilize a uh, uh, an area of land from further warfare and combat and then go off on their merry way to go do other adventures. But when they come back to places just raised, all of their hard it's work... Blighted. It's been blighted because all their hard work has been undone by the storyline or local villain who's be really, like, hey, power vacuum, stop! Yeah, He sees a sudden power vacuum and exploits the crap out of it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly all the hard work by the players, all that time and planning is undone. Broken. Players don't like that shit. It's almost as bad as stealing from them. If you take shit from a player character, they will go to hell and back to get like, that stuff back. If you ever really just want to kick your players in the dick where it counts, <laughs> you put them in a dungeon where you promise them the fucking world. And then it turns out it's a mythic fight against rust beasts, where they have the ability to destroy artifacts. Yes, rust monsters piss players off. Yep. Those are very awesome. And you and have rust monster swarms that can destroy their small items. Yeah, if you make a game in such a way that there is some way a hook that's pre-written, so you know you're not screwing your players over all willy-nilly, or they can't prove you are screwing them over all willy-nilly. <laughs> it's the important thing, plausible deniability. Plausible de deniability. But at the same time, if you make it personal somehow, your players will respond. Uh, and depending on your player, though, there are some who will respond in crazy-ass ways. So it, when you make it personal, put a little forethought into it. Yeah. Like, like, if you get one of those guys who has, like, the NPC who's his waifu, and you kidnap his waifu and then turn her into a flesh golem... Oh, boy, there's gonna be a reckoning. Yeah, if, if, this, if this is the kind of individual who has, like, no self-control away from the table and you've taken away his power fantasy, you might be in for a bunch of mean tweets and bad reviews on Roll20 and stuff. So. Or they give you an upper decker in your toilet. Yeah, you, you never know. So The yeah, worst players. Making things uh, personal for the players, uh, make it personal for the players in such a way that they can vent through their character. Yeah. Or run a dungeon with their actual IRL fears. Depends on how much of a dick you want to be. Do you really want that boss monster to finally put that player in their place because they've been walking around like a murder hobo swinging their dick in every place. I mean, like, the last D&D game I ran, both of you guys were in it. Yep. yep. What made Margulis the villain, who was the overarching story villain, what made him such a focal point for you to want to kill him beyond me pointing at him saying, bad guy? Because I came, my character came from a place which was already rolled over by necromancers and the undead and there was a way to do that without fucking everyone else over, but these laughing zombie elves completely were an abomination to my eyes, and I had to correct it. And he was preventing me from finding out about, finding out about my true lineage. Right. At the same token, I think... Um, 
the f to Rawl to start, his whole shtick was just sort of stranger in a strange land mode, right? He was just sort of along for the ride in his own way, but he was so fervent to see it to its end and couldn't because one of Margillis's traps <laughs> works a little too well. So, what you're saying, both of you, is that your characters were just fine sleeping. Margulis, because he's... the Especially, um, I don't know if it was the same character, but the, the Flesh Warper. He got my goat, because that's fucking wrong. Yeah, he was the Flesh Warper. Yeah, that, that was the big bad guy. Okay, so I, was th I wasn't sure if you were talking you know, about that. You know the guy that. who would say, Teddy bye, before releasing some horrible monster... The one that created the thirteen. Oh yeah, fuck the thirteen. So that was a fight. That was yeah, a, that was a that fun was fight. a very fun boss fight. I love how I caught you off guard with that one ability I had that destroyed the first wave of the thirteen. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I didn't want to reveal so soon what the thirteen special gimmick was, but that definitely kicked it off. <laughs> Just well, bam. Well, okay, fine. I guess we're playing it fastball. But yeah. but so the the thing that got my character about Margulis was if I was any closer to have been playing a cleric, I would have been undead kill kill kill. That is how much he bothered me because I came from a world where you could have the undead and everything was fine and the living could still exist. We were just ruled over by un you know, undead lords and it was fine. But this guy was purposefully going through and trying to destroy everything and it really irked my character. And then we found out that his lineage hinged on him finding out, but Margulis kept getting in the way. So see, I made it, it a, a little main. bit personal for you guys out of character. Yeah. You can tell. And I also made it a little bit personal for you in character. Oh yeah. So I was... That, I succeeded then, apparently, in finding that balance of making it a worthwhile storyline villain. Oh yeah. By making it personal. Both in and out of character. Just enough that it didn't make you want to throw your character sheet at me and walk out. But I think the sword was a step too far because it ended up killing the campaign. Quite literally. No, the sword didn't kill the campaign. The player did. He is Fair. the one who chose to keep the sword. He's the one... Okay, I, I will admit I have made mistakes as a game master. <laughs> and I am in contention mentally over this because the sword itself was also a villain... Again, the rule of two. It was a sub-boss. It was a sub-boss. I was going by the rule of two. I'd never revealed the second villain because it was in your party, in his hand the whole time. <laughs> but the player is the one, and you guys remember specifically, every time he used that blade with the intent to kill, I made him roll a saving throw. And he kept failing. He and couldn't every, win to save his life. Couldn't win to save his life. And then when he started uh, failing throws is when the sword started making him do things. And it wasn't like, you've lost your character, bam, instantly. It was a slow, gradual buildup. Hey, whack the next thing. And you two and two other, no, three other players at the game table turned and looked at him, and for half a game session, you held an intervention. Mm -hmm. you Basically in and out of character. In and out of character. It, it ended that entire session because we ended up spending the second half of the night trying to have an intervention with him about why he should give up the sword. He was, why he should give up the sword. You guys literally had an intervention with him. Most people most people would think, huh, 
I have five other people at the game table telling me that I need to ditch a weapon, that I need to make saving throws to use, and if I fail said saving throw, I attack other people in my group. Most people who are of sound mind and body would have second thoughts about keeping a hold of that blade. He didn't. <laughs> he defended his stance on keeping that blade both in and out of character. And it was adamant. It, it was It was almost as bad as his whole it's just a body comment. <laughs> yeah. Which he still defends to this day. And, you know, this is also the same sword that slew my character, and it's, it is the only time in gaming that I, I, I feel kind of proud of this, actually. It is that, a proud moment. That I would have survived if he had done one more damage. If he had done one more damage, I would have a player survive a combat. But... One, with, with that one swing, if he had dealt one more point of damage, I would have woke up at one HP. Okay, I it would have sucked. That what? sword probably was a bit much, and I did trap the player a little bit too well. But the second villain in my game was the foil. Literally. It literally was the foil. Yes, very literally, actually. And he held that sword. He had ample warnings in-game that keeping that blade was a bad idea. But he didn't get rid of it. Therefore, I would have to say, in retrospect, that was a good villain. Because my player fell right into the villain's trap, hook, line, and sinker, and refused to believe he was trapped. The best prison... Until the game died. The, the best prison has bars you can't see. No shit. And, he and walked, chains you don't wear. He walked right into that prison, head held high, and said, I am not a prisoner. As the door shut and locked. <laughs> the villain won. Because my player character at the table, you guys had to have an intervention for, believed that the villain wasn't winning. Despite multiple warnings over several game sessions. And plenty of warning signs before that. Yeah, even when I first started making him make willpower rolls, other players at the table were like, wait, what? Hang on here. That's not... <laughs> Save's not good. Save's not good. Yeah. So I think we've done pretty well at the ones, the twos, and the threes. Now let's go down to early level bosses. Early so we're talking about your levels one through four. Okay. What are the good bosses for that, that level area? Again, it's a matter of scale. So, like, your mid-tier was, you know, a decent chunk of land, like, eh, a 10-day uh, walk. Province. Yeah, a province, uh, something like that, a county. Right? That's a small area, but when you're when you're lower levels still, it's just shrinking the, the algorithm again. Well, it, so you're talking change, like... Because are you going to yeah. have them go up against a caster, or is it just... Well, you know, the, the sheriff of this fucking county is a super douchebag monopolizing everything, and he's running it like a mafia don, <laughs> so you gotta take him out. And that's something low-level characters can do, magic or... Yeah, no and it's it's basically like this city, this town, this small section of area. Nah, I would have to say it's this desperate dude, or dudette, yeah. depending. Or... <laughs> Non-conforming. I've Whatever. done this in a game, not with you guys, with a, a previous group. 
the Harold's back to actually a meme of Kabul's looking at a treasure chest filled with useful things and being like, why are we guarding this instead of using it? Yeah. If you give somebody an opportunity to power up their base of operations or their personal power levels, you know, why would I use a flintlock to shoot at player characters if I'm the bad guy? When I have in my possession. There's a fucking M16 and plenty of ammo in the treasure chest. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm dropping the flintlock and grabbing the M16. Then the player characters are actually going to be really challenged as I lay down covering fire. And so I did this, especially like in early levels. People just walk up, they kill the kobolds, kick down the door, take the gold, gain a level. Well, what if the kobolds were wearing the gear? And I did this in a game where all of the treasure was on the golem. The flesh golem? The flesh golem. I remember, you've told me about this. And it screwed their goddamn day up. So if I was to do a boss, say, again, kobolds. A good example, because they're a great early game... Uh, low tiers. A low tier example of something to fight that will ruin your goddamn day just by being kobolds. Traps! 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 Traps, pitfalls, boiling oil, all the fun stuff. Kobolds are defense geniuses. They're just not always successful. Not always. However, if they get to the kobold chieftain, why would the chieftain who's there to be the big boss between him, the treasure, and a bunch of level threes, why would he not take the magic robe out of the treasure chest and wear it? Why would he leave the wand of burning hands in the treasure chest? I would think that anybody of sound, logical mind would be like, a magic ring that gives me a plus one to avoiding damage? Fuck yeah! Hell, I'm going to wear that! Sure, it may be a little OP, especially for the players and the way game balancing works in most games. However, in a one-on-one fight, once they get past all the traps and everything, that makes the boss all the more scary. And it means that when they get the chest, there's going to be very little in the chest that's usable because the guy they were just fighting Had was smart enough to actually put on the boots of speed. Yeah. And oh then, of my course, god. And, somebody... you know, everyone in the party is just going to be like, well, he's dead. He had a lot of cool shit on him. Oh. Well, then again... Uh, they still get their loot. Kaz, you and I have been part of a campaign where basically the other people in the party are like, alright, we killed it, we field strip it. We kill it, we field strip it. And it got really, really bad in-game where we are literally pulling off goblin dog slicers and having to scrap them for money when it's like, alright guys, this feels a little much. This is a little meta to just be field stripping everything. What party is going to run through and say, alright guys, we're going to take a rest, but the people who don't need a rest are going to run all this loot up to the wagons. Yeah, there is a point that player characters for some reason should automatically come equipped with a crowbar. Well, it's in most of the good kits. It's it, yeah, I know. For some reason, a crowbar is in like almost all of the good kits, and mm-hmm. a lot of player characters will demand that they use that crowbar as often as possible. This is not always the case. I'm saying with boss monsters, uh, as the topic of our podcast today is. Oh yeah. With the boss monster, they're usually the one who's standing in between the loot and the players. But if the boss monster is using some of that loot. It adds an extra level of uncertainty to the encounter of going, oh, it's just a Kabold Shaman, he's got spells. Mm-hmm. You don't know 
what magic items he's wearing that you've already randomly rolled as part of the loot table. Yeah. He may decide that some of that randomly rolled loot has actually been useful for defending his tribe's treasure. Yeah. He, he may have the rod of fucking magic missile. Or a wand or a fucking ring of protection, too. Why not? Yeah. You know, and, and it makes more interesting. The other thing, you know, goblins pulled this on me. Children. <laughs> moral dilemmas. The other kind of boss fight. Yes, moral dilemmas is a hell of a boss fight. <laughs> I got like three good hours of, of GMing for that one sentence. That sat there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the best part of that game, honestly, from my point of view, because I was standing behind the counter for most of it, uh, ringing out customers... But while you guys were in the game room doing your gaming, is the fact that when I poke my head in, the players who are evil in alignment, or I mean, are the characters, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's questionable with that group. It, it was questionable with that group. I, I think with only one of them, I could say lawful good, almost bordering on lawful stupid. Mm. But the rest of them are... Somewhere in the chaotic band. Somewhere in the chaotic neutral bandwagon. Yeah, yeah. I was CG. Meaning on evil. Uh... However, I think the best part was, is the people who were playing evil-aligned characters were defending the children and saying, we need to rescue them. Mm. The people who are playing characters who are good in alignment are like saying, kill the children. Because they are evil. They are still evil and blah, blah, blah. blah. It was this whole argument. It was, it was the best boss fight because yeah. it wasn't one. It turned the party on each other because it was a boss fight where... Instead of doing uh, a game dungeon normally, as I normally do, or as anybody normally does, where you start out a little bit and get stronger as the players go in, mm -hmm. like your standard JRPG shit, I reversed the dungeon and put the strongest on the outside so the fights got easier as you got in. And then when you get to the middle, you discover the reason why the strongest were on the perimeter is they were guarding their nursery. Mm. And then you start the moral dilemma, are the children born inherently evil, or are they taught to be evil? Nature versus nurture. It was a big thing. And since they've already killed everybody who can possibly take care of the kids... They're stuck with save or slaughter. You're stuck with the choice. Oh, that was glorious. I it loved was, that. It was great. I pulled that on my players and... Similar yeah, results? Similar results. Well, see, I ran it a different way where a town said they were being attacked by goblins... It turns out they weren't, but no one knew that yet. They found the back way into the goblins' warren, and first thing they see are the old and the young, children and the elderly, because all the the infirm. Yeah, the the goblins who were actually having to like do shit in post guard were out either trying to hunt or they were out at the actual entrance, not the emergency runaway. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's also the scenario, and I haven't run it personally myself, but I've heard about it is you get the Pied Piper boss. Uh, yeah, this is a low-level kind of boss. He's a Pied Piper. And you blend in children into that, and he basically starts a cult and brainwashes the local children of a few villages. So when the player characters go to confront the boss monster... All they, the kids are like, No, don't hurt him! Yeah, basically, you have to wade through a bunch of kids who are willing to beat you down in the name of you know their... Uh, new lord and master person who promises them a glorious utopia or something. But Whatever they're the underage, like a cult, but they're underage kids. And a wizard 
is really screwed in this because almost every magic spell out of all the books are lethal by nature. Mm-hmm. It depends the on how you... The fighter has a sword, and if, if they're lucky, they, they might have, like, pugilist as a sidebar. The cleric has a mace <laughs> and healing spells. You know, at this point, you'd be happy to have a monk who can go non-lethal. I declare bat, on... Bat, 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 every bat. attack for the next few rounds is going to be non-lethal. Or a druid. Or a Entangle. Or entangle. Something, yeah. But it does bring up that... The, the, again, it brings up that morality question, and the boss introduces this to the players. Again, that makes it personal. Because to get to the boss, you have to go through children, and if you choose the lethal route, you're now the bad guys. You're killing innocents who have just been brainwashed and manipulated. Yeah, and kids are impressionable as fuck. And everybody kids, knows this. Everybody knows that. So a good low-tier boss monster will manipulate the battleground to their advantage, and that's just one example of how they would do it. Yeah, and like that's another thing is like using the environment. A smart boss will set up traps. They'll set up booby traps and things. And hey, I don't wonder what this lever does. Flip. Yeah. Boom. Like yeah. the only way Swing to get to the uh, the only way to get to the boss, of course, to get to their lair is of course across a rope bridge. Hmm. I wonder what the trap and is. And if there. somebody is a low level, basically Boop. almost. Barely graduated from being a minion to being a boss, I would foresee that they would add a quick release trigger mechanism to the rope bridge. So when the player characters come going, we're going to kill you in the name of justice, he's like, nope, pull the Flick. rope. Bye! I'm gonna totally send you into that water filled with crocodiles, Indiana Jones style. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's just kind of the thing is you gotta definitely plan your villains out. For the scenario, the area, what you want to do with them, but sometimes having that underhand of like this villain ain't an idiot. They yeah. actually have a wisdom score. Yeah. You know the the trap door to get out of there. Or the favorite thing I love to do is having sub bosses for low level. I did this with a bandit camp guy. So he had this badass breastplate, right? But it was unknowingly cursed by the actual bad guys. Ah. So that when he tried to use it, because he was told it had a teleport, but it would only work once. And it would bring him right to his boss. So he didn't have to worry. It's like Instead, this is, it this killed him. <laughs> it, it was basically a localized fireball. But when the player characters went to go and get the breastplate, it was no longer enchanted. It was just a breastplate that was all fucked up. Well, you have a sub-boss that when they try to do that whole underhand of, haha, I'm going to get out of here, does it work? Is it actually a teleport where it teleports you in flames? What is it? But sometimes pulling a, a, a sub-boss out and then bringing them back in later can be fun, too. Oh, yeah. There was Recurring an enemies. There was an entire campaign thread about one motherfucking paranoid little bitch of a villain. And, like, his whole shtick was he was a paranoid and really didn't like confrontation. So what would happen is he would devise these crazy plots and, like, do stuff to get in the player's way, and when the players caught up to him, he'd be like, Nope, fuck this shit, I'm out! Every time, time, and time, and time again. And that will drive your players fucking bug nuts. Oh or yeah, there's, like, the boss that was in one story I was reading... 
And the players were basically running behind him the entire time in the campaign, cleaning up his messes. And the only reason the guy was doing what he was doing is because he had nothing to live for. And he had a shit ton of money. So he was out hiring, like, mercenary companies to attack other mercenary companies and then leaving. And just letting them figure stuff out after he left. Or buying up all the grain. Because? Because he could. He had the money to do it, and he had nothing to live for. And this guy became a boss of the campaign, where the players finally caught up to him. He had run out of money. He had stopped moving. They're like, okay, we're going to kill you now. He's like, fine, I have nothing to live for. My family died years ago due to the plague, and I've got all this money from being a wealthy, successful merchant, but... The fuck's the point? What's the point? I've lost everything in life worth having. Yeah. It's not a combat encounter, but it still managed to engage the players. Right. It, and speaking of that, I think wasn't the the good necromancer wasn't his final fight was just his the, monologue. His monologue on his deathbed, like, "Fine, kill me. Undo all the hard work that I've done uh, for yes. everything that I've done and strive for this, in this world. I've just watched you tear down like a bunch of brainless monkeys. Fine, have your moment." Have your moment. You win. Yay. And it's just a sad, depressed man. It's like, it's this oh. giant build-up to a climax, and then you yank the carpet out from under them, and now they're just sit there questioning. Well, I was going to pull that, the whole morality thing on Blasphemous here. He was <laughs> um, running a dungeon, and you wanted me to make a uh, custom character, but me being who I am, I got distracted by shiny things. <laughs> and the, the whole concept was a synthesis... What a word. Synthesis Summoner who was tortured and mutilated to basically being a savage had the arms and legs removed surgically their mouth was sewn shut. I mean, just all sorts of horrible stuff. You know, pretty much the worst thing you can do in Dungeons and Dragons that let somebody live was done to this uh, summoner. And then they were chained up and left in a room to guard between the outer exterior of the dungeon to the dungeon proper. And they were constantly in their synthesis form, so it's this big, nasty, you know, toothy, spiked monster creature thing that will, you know, be the stuff of nightmares. But once you defeat the summoner, of course, the summon will go away. Once the summoner is knocked out, the summon goes away. And so the player characters would come in and, of course, be the heroes and beat the crap out of this horrible, horrible monster and then see an armless, legless, sewn mouth shut halfling collapse to the floor and cry. Yeah. Because you know in his situation, the only thing that, ha that follows that is death or pain and nothing else. Yeah. It's basically somebody who's already been mind-broken to be essentially feral. And they're just left in there, and all they remember to do is summon monsters to kill. And so since they're a synthesis, they are the monster. But once you defeat the monster, you find out it's just basically Master Blaster. It's a helpless midget with no arms and legs. So this is the kind of morality I pull in with my bosses. And this would make an excellent boss creature, because after you kill them, of course, the heartless players would be like, ah, just finish it off. But the ones who are not so heartless would look at the situation and be like, if the bad guy is willing to do this to somebody they like, mm -hmm. what are they going to do to us? Right? And, you know, there's, there's two different thoughts, line of thoughts on the 
uh, heartless versus unheartless, right? It's mercy. So there's the mercy kill route. It's like this poor thing has suffered enough, and some of that by our hands. The least we can do is put it out of its misery. Absolutely, that's a good merciful uh, response. Right. Another version of that is it ain't dead yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the one that there, there's always a third path, though. Like you say, someone can always come along and take the other path. What if they heal them back to undo what was done to them? I mean, now you've got to unbreak a mind-broken halfling with feral tendencies. <laughs> you've got to re-instruct them, re-educate them, re-socialize them. You have to put your fucking work in to get this guy back to a functioning... Oh, and if you screw up, they turn into a giant raging monster that took your entire party to, like, whip into submission? Yeah, mm-hmm. and so that's, like, that's the long road to recovery. But if you're, you know, if you've got enough power and patience behind it, go for it. If it's your players a- want to do that, do it. Well, it's still the route I would go with, though, is introducing a monster like that for the moral conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. And, at, like, he was going on the, on the, the scale of bosses being zero to, from minion to world-shattering tens... This boss could fit in anywhere in that scale. As yeah. a sub-boss, you can make a synthesis summoner who's level one to challenge a level one party. And keep climbing And it. the big bad guy is actually a ten, who's level ten already, and just did this on his way through town kind of crap. Mm-hmm. But you could also bring the summoner in as a sub-boss for a level 15 campaign. Yeah. It's... Oh, or there's my favorite boss quote ever. For you, it was the most important day of your life. For me, it was Thursday. The completely nonchalant final boss is great, where he's like, who are you and why are you here? I don't even know you. That was M. Bison? Yeah, M. Bison. But so there's plenty of great bosses where you see them and it's like, they're like, why are you attacking? I I don't get this. What, what, What is going on? Why are you here? And and you're just like, but my whole my whole story was to come after you because you ruined my village or some other bullshit reason that I just wrote so I could do this campaign with people. And the boss is just like, I don't care. Or the other way to really go about it that's really fucked up is to introduce your boss to the party, and when they finally encounter him, instead of going straight into combat mode, the boss treats him with civility. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Like Darth Vader in Cloud City. There was a whole meal prepared. There was a whole meal. Like, the players show up and they're like, oh, yeah, we've come here to fight your evil kingdom and we sliced our way through your guards and everything. It's like, evil kingdom? Well, let me explain to you the way things were before I got here. And it's actually worse. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and they find out that the boss has been slowly scaling back on the evil shit. And he's actually a good guy. He just doesn't want to make the change overnight because it's too much too quick. Yeah, it, it's yeah. one of those things of, you know, you you boil the frog slowly, which is technically wrong because they had to take the frog's brain out, but you have to do things in steps. If you try to cut off uh, kind of drinking like COVID soda... and lockdowns. <laughs> we're not going there. Okay. We're not going there. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like stopping drinking soda. If you do it all at once, you get the shakes, you get the caffeine headaches, you get the whole nine. Yeah. Yeah. You got to step it down, but... One thing I really thought would be interesting, it's something I've wanted to do for a long time, is run a campaign where there's a DMPC that ends up falling off, you know, dying, dick fingers, air quotes, 
dying at one point. So the party kind of forgets about them. They, they, they don't decide to raise them for whatever reason, or they can't, because they worship whatever god, so the resurrection gods won't do it. Well, it turns out that they actually survived that, and then they ran alongside and used them as a distraction to actually kill the bad guy, to take his place and go, all right, now I've got the power. Ha, ha, ha. And I know all your guys' tricks, so ha ha. And on that same subject, I read another post. Um, an, an idea for an evil GM, right? Is to in to make a DMPC. He's their healer. He's their helpful buddy. He's their supportive friend in just about everything. Then when it comes to the final boss, they come up on an empty throne room. And your friendly, helpful buddy just walks over, sits down in the chair, and be like, And here we are. I did one that really pissed off a group. I, it almost killed my game. Yeah. It pretty much did. But again, this heralds back to the boss was not a dummy. And the boss of this uh, particular adventure was a spellcaster who specialized in, of all things... Divination. That is a terrifying thing. He was basically doing nothing more than manipulating the local region for his own entertainment to see how people would react. He was basically, in essence, a social engineer spellcaster. But part of his magic spellcasting was predicting the future. Of course, he's a diviner. By invoking chaos into the elements of what's currently out there. So if one town suddenly has a blight that makes the farm less appreciable towards the harvest, how will this affect the region as a whole? This is his question. So he divines this. So he's practicing magic and practicing reality at the same time. And the player characters, without even realizing he's the big bad evil guy yet, start muscling in and fixing the problems that he's created. This is very fascinating. So he starts creating bigger problems. Because what are they going to do next? What are they gonna I want to know! Unfortunately, at some point, they get clued in that there's a manipulator screwing up the entire kingdom. Manipulating village by village, by town by town, by barony by barony. Just poking needles at things in the right spot because he's divining and watching everybody as often as he can. So the wizard is basically essentially standing in a room with a shitload of TV monitors, but in this case it's D&D, so it's a fuck ton of crystal balls. Mm-hmm. Watching or things proje- advanced projections. Advanced projections watching things play out all across the kingdom because he's curious about causality. That's his his big thing. He's just really interested in it. Nerd, nerd. <laughs> the player characters start getting a little too close. This is bad for his projects. And this is, Mike, his no, no, what, there's more to learn. Go there, fuck off. Go that way. He wants them to fuck off because he knows the, the player characters are fucking murder hobos. Mm-hmm. So he does what any intelligent villain would do. And this is a, a low tier. He's like on the rank between 1 and 20. He's about a, a 7.5. Mm-hmm. That's being nice. You know, he's got enough divination spells to pull this off and enough mental acumen to pull it off, but he's not a global mastermind. He's not going to move and shape the realms. And he keeps the shit really local. It, because, you know, it's an experiment. 
This kingdom is his petri dish. He doesn't need cross-contamination. So what he does is he hires four uh, individuals who are mercenaries who have a skill set that is balanced and contrary to the player characters. Mm -hmm. And then he ensures that the mercenaries he hires are all team players. They're strategists, they're tacticians, they're hunters, they're bounty hunters. They're people who know to succeed in the goal, you have to work for it, and if the goal is big, you have to work with others in a collaborative, master, in a collaborative tactical strike. Because he wants the player characters removed from the equation now because they're yeah. screwing things up. No, no, you're, you're, you're putting the wrong color in my Petri dish. No, no, get and that so, out of here. The next thing I know, four murder hobos, whose tactical acumen devolves to combat has started, I'm the star of combat, I rush forward and attack. No assists, no helping each other out, they wait till combat's over to do the healing and shit, but during combat, everybody is the star of the show. Oh, Meanwhile, yeah. the four NPCs I have lined up have already worked out a tactical plan, they know the weaknesses, and they know the strategies of the player characters because the Diviner told them so. <laughs> this is the information on your targets. And they fucking rickroll a party. And the party thought that I built this group specifically to wipe them out because I'm a horrible GM. And I'm like, no, actually the NPC is a horrible guy. I'm doing what he would do in this situation. They get fucking annihilated because... Everybody wants to be the star of the show, and they always heal after combat, mm -hmm. so they know they don't have to worry about the cleric until the end. They still neutralize him with a silence spell, because they know he's a cleric, and deafness blindness does horrible things to clerics! Yup. And, you know, the monk is always, I'm faster than everybody else, and that's my special snowflake power, so he runs forward right into another trap, because they know that's exactly how he starts every combat. He rushes forward headlong to attack the person who's the largest. Well. So the Diviner told him, hey, this is how they've been fighting in my experiments for the last several months. My game almost died because the players thought I designed this encounter specifically to just fucking annihilate them because I'm a bad GM. Not because the Diviner, who's the big bad evil guy of the story, is fearful that they're getting a bit too close. So he set up the ultimate fuck you. So he set up a fuck you. That, and that's the thing the player characters never understood. And it's one of those things I think as a GM I should learn from. And I, I have a bit. And most GMs should. When an encounter seems like it's a bit too much for the players and they have absolutely no chance. And it's a weird balance because if you play it correctly, the players will just they'll wave your finger at you and call you a horrible person. But they, at the same time, they demand them not to have NPCs that are dumb. They get bored of the, the same dumb, uh, I'm the bad guy. And and that's the thing. It's, it is a razor's edge to walk that line. Mm. And, you know, that's something that every GM has to face. And every GM has to discover with their own group, like, where the line is and how to walk it for them. Bosses are no different. Bosses, yeah, they're no different. They're yeah. just a bit more powerful than the mooks. Sometimes they're just mooks that have been empowered. Mm -hmm. I mean, anything goes. There's a lot of creative things. And the other thing you can do with boss fights is make them memorable because they did something sideways. 
you know, the GM is, uh, the, the, the villain is smart. The boss is, you know, actually has a bit of wisdom behind them. Like, the yeah. whole thing was thematic and smelled of cinnamon. I mean, it's just as valid as, you know, the 13 fight, which we've dropped mention of, which was mentioned, which was unique because of its very distinct gimmick. Mm. The middle stages were kind of harder than the small, than the first and last. Well, it was a boss. What was interesting about that boss is once we got from 13 down to, I think it was about 3? No, 4. 4 was when and the smell... No, it was when he started doing the um, overrun oh, technique. Yeah. And he started just overrunning you guys like crazy. The, the three of them on the table just like... Ran around. I just stomp across the party this turn and then stomp across you next turn. You guys were having major difficulties with that. And then once you got past that point, you just like... He just blew on him, and he <laughs> fell over. It's like, okay, we got one left. Just just sneer at him ever so slightly. He'll crumple like a wet tissue. Yeah, and that's sort of the big deal about that. Is That was a very interesting fight, and the new abilities made it a challenge. But it was memorable because of the effort that you put into it, like, for me. And, like, that's just a neat theme. Let's call it like it is. It, it, was, it was definitely a theme, and that's one thing that bosses need, and I know you're learning that over there, Blasphemous. Yeah, with the way I've been running, my bosses have been a big balance. Uh, and even impromptu bosses, because sometimes random encounter tables, you just always gotta have 20 be the hardest thing that's a little outside of their range so they can learn to run away. Because sometimes, you build the boss correctly, their best option is to run away and try and come back at the boss a different angle. You know, actually, my closing it, thought. It, it's actually kind of funny. I'll, I'll close up my thought that if your group of player characters think that every encounter, and I'm, I'm segueing off of your final thoughts here, Aha. if they think every encounter in the game, bosses included, should be fair and balanced at all times, they're not really thinking things through because in real life, if you're part of a four-man unit and you run forward into enemy territory where they are entrenched, it's not going to be a fair and, and a challenging uh, encounter. It's going to be a slaughter of your side. The same rules apply at the table regardless of dice rolls. If you do stupid stuff, you get stupid character sheets to fill out again. And, like, the other thing, you know, since it seems to be... Yeah, it seems to be our time, is... Well, uh, I, as a GM, will not protect you from your own dumbasses. But I will not be deliberately out of my way to kill you. There will still be things bigger than you, and there will still be things that you have the choice to run away from. That's on you guys. And that's, that's I think, something that everyone needs to do. Now tremble in terror at my dungeon that I've created out of Peach Cobbler! <laughs>